Thanks for downloading this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. In Life Solved, we're asking the big questions about our world, from politics to technology, our bodies and our environment. To do this, our interviewers have snatched moments with researchers who are challenging existing ideas and finding new ways of solving the world's problems. This time, we're asking what the human cost is of using drones in warfare. More specifically, we're looking into the experiences of the people who use these remote weapons to kill. I never felt that I could possibly ask somebody to talk about what would undoubtedly be the worst day of their life. From a camera 20,000 feet in the air, he can see her body juddering with shock. In mainstream reporting, it's often assumed that operating weapons at a distance takes the emotional impact away from the act of taking a human life. But is this really the case? They'll assume that if you're 3,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away, that you are, if you're physically detached, you're emotionally detached. They're physically a long way away, but the human dimension of war can never be taken away. Today, Emma Fields meets a former military chaplain who turned his attention to the ethics of the technology we use in modern warfare. Peter Lee told us about his findings around the real impact of using human-operated drones. Peter Lee is the Director of Security and Risk Research at the University of Portsmouth. He studied for degrees in both engineering and cultural studies before his interest in the military took him close to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. When I was a military chaplain in a military hospital in Akrotiri in Cyprus, all the British and some American battlefield casualties from Iraq were brought mm. to the hospital and I would sit with them for hours every day sometimes all night and and my view of war is not guns bombs and bullets my mm. view of war is wounded people broken people damaged mm. people funerals breaking news that your son or your husband or your children's father has been killed and will mm. not be coming home that's that's my experience of war that deeply painful human mm. side peter became disturbed by the suffering and trauma he witnessed and he chose to do some research into the experience of human drone operators. Eventually, he got access to British Reaper drone sites in Britain and America, and he found himself observing the drone operators in action. What he saw in the lives of RAF Reaper operators surprised him. Although I left chaplaincy to commence an academic career, partly because of the toll the chaplaincy took on me, kind of thing, I still retained that interest in military people, their welfare, and I try to understand the lives of the people who do these extraordinary things. The, the operators are sitting in either Waddington in Lincolnshire mm -hmm. or in Nevada in yeah. the United States, and they're operating Reaper aircraft over Syria or Iraq, mm -hmm. and bluntly uh, they are either watching or killing mm -hmm. and then going home to their families afterwards. I'm fascinated by the differences between conventional flying and remote piloting, we'll call it that, because the word drone is often taken to suggest that they're somehow automatic or autonomous or not. They're, they're piloted remotely just from a very long distance away. And in terms of comparing that to conventional flying, many of the crews used to fly conventional aircraft. The obvious difference is the lack of sensation Mm -hmm. In a Reaper, they sit in a, in a ground control station, which is effectively like a shipping container mm. with all the computers and control equipment inside. 
and huge amount of uh, screens and mm. internet chat, secure military internet chat, not, not oh. uh, regular internets. The Reaper has three crew members, which you might have read, but there's a pilot who flies it. And when it comes to it, the pilot will pull a trigger mm. to fire a missile or drop a bomb. Next to the pilot is the sensor operator mm-hmm. who operates all the cameras and various other equipment and sensing equipment that it has. And if a missile is fired, the sensor operator will use a laser control, uh, a joystick, to guide the weapon onto its target, whether that's a human target or a vehicle or a building. It was a short step from observing the decisions and experiences of the RAF Reaper operators to asking why we so rarely hear reports of trauma in the job. Peter wasn't ready to assume that the distance and training made it all easy to process. Facebook and YouTube have been in the press talking about how their online image moderators are increasingly seeking psychological support for what they see, killings, rapes, beheadings and so on. And when you add all these things up, that can be a bad day in a Reaper. I've read a study of photojournalists who've been traumatised, war journalists who are famously robust people. Yeah mentally traumatized so in all these different civilian contexts people are experiencing mental trauma so I I think it's not a great leap of the imagination to suspect that Mm. at least some of the military people are being similarly affected. He spoke to the operators, former operators, their families and spouses and he was astonished by their candid testimonials. Even when operators were not keen to speak on the record in some cases they changed their minds in order to challenge the view that these remote drones somehow completely detached people from the killings they made. In fact, Peter quickly found the opposite to be true in many cases. One of the most significant, if not the most significant, incident in the history of the Royal Air Force Reaper operations was a strike, a bombing event in 2011, where a crew dropped a 500-pound bomb on a vehicle. There were two vehicles that they were targeting. The, the vehicles, the information they had, the intelligence information, said that they were full of homemade explosives, which turned mm-hmm. out to be accurate. And they were each being driven in Afghanistan by someone from the Taliban, which was also accurate. What was not accurate, because they, they flew into this situation, they're given the information, and then they did the targeting, and there's a chapter mm-hmm. on this. What they didn't know until they dropped the first bomb and blew up the first vehicle and the second vehicle stopped behind it is that night in the dark and as they, they went round to bomb the second vehicle what they found instead of one male driver in each there was a whole, a whole family in each and they watched as two dead children and two dead women were pulled out of the vehicle that they had just bombed and laid under a tarpaulin and my interview with one of the crew members, he, he recounts his experience and what it's like to live with that all the years yeah. afterwards, knowing, knowing what you did and having seen it and going through the whole process. And I always knew about this event. It's, yeah. it's on public record. It's very important historically. But I never felt that I could possibly ask somebody yeah. to talk about what would undoubtedly be the worst day of their life. Through his research, Peter was able to build up a relationship with some of the people he interviewed, including their 25 spouses and partners. The result was that some felt candidly able to share things that otherwise wouldn't be represented anywhere. 
got this email that said, Pete, I think your book will be lacking something if it doesn't talk about that civilian casualty incident. So um, I will be willing to be interviewed. You know, I think he spoke to his wife, mm. spoke to others, and we spoke about it at great length. And, and whenever people say anything in the public domain about Reaper operators, the one thing that is almost guaranteed is that they will not actually have spoken to any. They'll assume that if you're 3,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away, that you are, if you're physically detached, you're emotionally detached. But it's yeah. actually the opposite. They're physically a long way away, but the detail of the camera is so much that in the distance, there's some, some men maybe 50 meters away there. So in terms of what they can see in the camera, their, their view, the detail of the view is somewhere between close arm combat and what an archer would have had at Agincourt. So they, they see in tremendous detail if they blow a limb off, they, so, so it is deeply affecting. And when they're going in to take shots to fire weapons, their heart rates go through the roof, the hair on the back of the neck stand up, they get a sick feeling in their stomach, it's all adrenaline because they know what they're about to do, they know they're about to kill someone and this is not a game. Further to this finding, Peter explained how the unique nature of Reaper drone operation can lead to a far deeper emotional impact on teams who sometimes have to watch targets for days. Operators must witness the emotional consequences of their actions upon the lives of other humans. This can be about as far from a remote experience as imaginable. The, the people who've done both, and I've spoken to them about this, they will say um, that it is harder on the Reaper because in a conventional aircraft, if they fly in at 420 knots, they'll have several seconds, depending on what height they're at, they'll have several seconds to, to lock onto the target, you've seen it in films, pull the trigger, but after the trigger has been pulled, they're flying off at 400 knots as well, so straight through, whereas the Reaper is much slower, so they will have watched for hours and possibly days and sometimes weeks before they watch one person, an important person for days, hours or weeks, build up in the entire picture of that person, they'll see them playing football with, with their sons or, or going for a walk with, with his wife, because it's usually men that, that, that they're after. And then the day will come when, so, so they know where he goes to the mosque, they know who his friends are, they know who his children are, and then when the day comes, they will kill that person. And then they will keep watching as parts of his body those parts they can find are put in a wheelbarrow and they will keep watching as that wheelbarrow is delivered back to, to the wife. And I've got a, a quote that I use of an operator from thousands of miles away and it, his kind of horror at seeing his wife presented with this wheelbarrow and she drops her knees on the ground and from a camera 20,000 feet in the air he can see her body juddering with shock you know, and seeing children finding their, their, their father mm. and, and so it's deeply humanising. Peter noted that drone personnel were offered voluntary mental health support should they need it, as well as trauma working groups. But there was no regular framework in place to assess the mental state of personnel on an ongoing basis. Another insight is, is of someone who towards the end of the, and this is really common, people do get affected by this, but he was getting more and more affected. And so by the time he finished his two year tour, he was getting aggressive and mm. uh, by his own admission. I saw him again last week actually, he's, mm. he's much better, but he was getting aggressive. This is someone who was known for being really placid and gentle. 
and he was a SMIC uh, senior mission intelligence coordinator. So as well as supervising two boxes with what they're doing and seeing all mm. the imagery, after a strike he would have to basically clip out a couple of minutes of the footage. So he'd be watching and re-watching the actual yeah. strike bit. So he would be watching and re-watching the most traumatic bits of every day mm. multiple times. And so all of these images were being firmly embedded in his mind. And so he took himself to the, the MDHU, the military uh, mental health uh, support unit, and got an appointment. And he's still serving. He's still not on the Reaper Force, but he's still in the Air Force. And as he walked into the waiting room, one of his colleagues that he had flown with many times mm -hmm. was sitting waiting to see the psychologist as well. They'd never even discussed it, mm -hmm. never knew about one another. But it's not that everyone is sitting there traumatised. It affects mm -hmm. people to different degrees. I think one or two are, uh, and they probably have left or will leave. Um, I'm almost more interested in how some people have managed to do this for five, six, seven years continuously. That's almost more fascinating than the fact that some people are struggling after a couple of years. Work is now being done to revise the support offered to operators. But what wider conclusions was Peter able to draw from his extensive research? He concluded that technology cannot remove the innately human nature of war and conflict. There's an example that I use in both my own book and, and this much shorter case study of an incident in Afghanistan where a British Reaper crew was tasked with targeting a Taliban high-value target, as they call them, I think he's a bomb maker. The crew and the relief crew had been authorised six times and cleared hot, as I call cleared hot means all the legal authorisations are in place, you can fire now. Yeah. So they were cleared hot six times to, to fire a missile and kill this, this yeah. Taliban target. And six times they didn't and couldn't because there were civilian vehicles going by or civilians in the vicinity. The seventh time, the, the target, the man who they're targeting is in the local bazaar. They're, they're observing what's going on. He gets on his motorbike, puts a box in the back um, and starts riding towards his, his home and compound, which is a number of kilometers away. So they're getting ready. They're cleared hot. They've got permission to strike. As soon as he's driving along the road far enough away that no civilians are going to be hit. Um, anyway, they, they go through all the final checks, clear tots, and the last thing the pilot will say is, everybody happy. And then over their earpiece from the operations room next door where they've got two supervisors, one is the authorizing officer, and the message came through just before they're about to pull the trigger and said, negative, the SMIC, Senior Mission Intelligence Coordinator, says there's a kid on the back of that bike. And so they all look at it. No, no, there's not. It's not high definition like it is now, but it's still pretty good. Smick says, negative. Oh, and by the way, the senior mission intelligence coordinator, she's a corporal, she's the most junior member of uh, this entire crew, yeah. and it is on her first day in a supervisory job. Oh, my God. And the crew itself is just about the most senior crew that yeah. can be compiled from the squadron. So this very senior and experienced crew are all saying, this is fine. A second aircraft is saying, this is fine. The authorising officer is saying it's fine. The headquarters, the command headquarters are saying, get on with it, this is fine. So anyway, after all this is going on, and they, look at, and, and they can rewind their video in real time. Mm. So they can have different screens and they're rewinding, watching, rewinding, and this is all happening at high speeds. No one can see anything. And so anyway, 
This is all taking several minutes, by which time the man arrives back at his family compound. They can't fire because he's now surrounded by his family. And uh, he stops his motorbike, turns around and puts a two-year-old child on the ground. And they all just, you know, they get their blood chills. And they watch and rewatch. And after all the reviewing, they could still not see how this smick on her first day. I mean, yeah, she had to have 500 hours experience in order mm. to do the job, but she'd never done this. And she stood up to all the that pressure bit, around yeah. about her and said, nope, I think the person read the body language and can't, and at a subconscious level, recognize something, but couldn't even explain it. Yeah. And that is why I am strongly against automating these things because how can you teach a machine yeah, when at the moment yeah. autonomous cars will both call, cause fatalities in recent times. Peter's point is that automation can't yet account for human intuition or emotion. And indeed, technology can't replace the complex ethical judgments that operatives and teams of operatives are required to make. The, the key thing that comes out of my research is that it almost seems to be the case that despite rapid advances in technology, the human dimension of war can never be taken away, can never be removed. And I think those who have a fixation, it might be politicians, it might be the media, it might, might be some military people itself, those who have a, an obsession with the technological aspects of war are, are missing a point, mm. and that is war is a deeply human activity. Mm. And, and I sometimes think, despite this being my personal area of academic interest, I sometimes think this obsession with drones is, is a first world self-indulgence because mm. 850,000 people died in Rwanda in 1995, mm. 94, 95. Um, and they were killed mainly by machetes and garden tools. Mm. And yet, if you think about the amount of coverage that, that drone strikes get in the media, mm compare that to almost a million Rwandans, mm. it does seem a bit self-indulgent to, to focus so intently on one aspect and, yeah. and, and overlook things that, that don't involve Western technology. Mm. So, so I think we shouldn't lose sight of the, the human factors and the human cost. Perhaps recognising the inevitable emotional engagement required to operate remote warfare technology will inform how it's used and the values attached to those actions going forward. Thanks to Peter for sharing some of the stories that came from his research. You can find out more in his book, Reaper Force, the inside story of Britain's drone wars. And for more information on our research areas and how they overlap to answer big questions, go to port.ac.uk forward slash research. Next time on Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth, how can one of life's most basic resources be political? Very, very powerful people will always have access to water. It's always the most vulnerable, the most marginal who have problems accessing water. Tell us what you think of this series via social media. You can also share this podcast using the hashtag LifeSolved or maybe just share the big idea with a friend. If you subscribe in your podcast app, you'll also get each episode of Life Solved automatically. Our new magazine, Solve, follows University of Portsmouth research when it's put into practice. It's full of news and stories on our world-leading advances and the changes these are making to lives and futures across the world. Get it at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. Catch you next time.